All right, everyone, welcome to Magnifying God. I'm your host, Adam Michael, and we have been unpacking this wonderful book, uh, Prepare to Overcome, Prepare to Overcome. And we've been unpacking this, and it's in four sections. We've knocked out that first section, which was actually a book previously written called Preparing the Saints. It was a workbook. So we knocked out that, and then we moved on to that next section, which is the royal priesthood. And we were walking through a good portion of that, but we're going to take a couple steps back today. And we want to bring some clarity to this idea of a royal priesthood. Now, if you hear a lot of people are like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a royal priest. You'll see a lot of people say that. But there are qualifications to this priesthood, to this royal priesthood. And it's very important that we take in consideration what these are. Because we can claim that we are them, but there's actually qualifications to become them. So our potential, of course, is a royal priest. We've been set apart for that. But there's these qualifications that go along with it. Now we look at that from an Old Testament standpoint, and we realize that these qualifications existed back then in the Old Testament. And we looked at what those qualifications actually were. So with me today, we're going to jump right in it. With me today is Debbie Simpson, and she's going to be explaining these qualifications. And she's going to help us understand what it truly means to be a royal priest. Debbie, you with us? I am, Adam. How are you today? Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, Yeah, feel free to take it away. And uh, I will put my mic on mute and I will let you go. Thank you. Well, before we get started, I would like to address um, in our previous podcast, we were discussing the oracle of God and the cherubim on the veil. And it was pointed out to me that um, we were discussing Ezekiel chapter one when it was how it described the cherubim. But then as we were talking, I began to quote as part of that, um, the Lord and the train of his robe filling the temple with glory. That is actually in Isaiah chapter six. So I kind of you know, um, mixed my two verses there. And I just wanted to apologize if I created any confusion, but what was stated was indeed true in Ezekiel chapter one. It does talk about the cherubim and it gave, um, descriptions regarding that. So anyway, just wanted to clear that up if it caused any confusion. And today we do want to talk really more about this Royal priesthood. And I wanted to take time to make uh, more plain and more clear all of the, qualifications and expectations that go into this. In previous podcasts, we have referred to the royal priesthood and we also have alluded to the status of this position in the kingdom as being something that cannot be assumed. And I know that for believers that have been grown up into this, this can be kind of shocking and it can be a red flag. And, um, for good reason, if there's no backing as to where this is coming from. So I would like to begin today to lay the scriptural foundation that relates to the royal priesthood. As we navigate through these scriptures, God reveals step by step that which is being communicated through his word as being a far greater significance than what has been traditionally understood. And it would challenge each believer to investigate further as it merits a second look. So already, um, I want to remind as we've gone through like the previous chapter on the priesthood. We've seen that the office of the priesthood requires qualifications higher than typically taught. 
And spoiler alert, we will begin to see this too in the study of the bride. That's why I want to lay these foundations because as these things come up, it would really help to um, keep uh, keep the listeners kind of engaged with regard to where this is going and why. So today's scriptures that we're going to use help clarify the issues relating to these premier highly valued positions in the kingdom of God. The scriptures we will talk about today qualify the belief that the standards for the positions of the royal priesthood or the bride in the kingdom of God have not only been set by God himself, but in his defense, they were revealed in the Old Testament by God to his people. So uh, first, I just want to jump right in. We want to look at Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. So it says, um, then he said to me, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build a temple of the Lord. Verse 13, yes, it is he who will build a temple of the Lord. He will bear honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So we see that the branch is Jesus, will sit and rule on his throne. Here we see with the words rule and throne, the royal aspect of the royal priesthood. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. Here we see the priesthood aspect of the royal priesthood. And then finally, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So what do we see? What do we learn here? Well. Jesus is the the branch, functions as both king and priest. And included in this is the understanding that he's the pattern son. We've talked about this on almost every episode. Hebrews 6.20 talks about he was a forerunner for us. Here, Jesus is the branch. But New Testament believers are also identified as a branch. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. So also... We see a dual functionality as the function of king and priest operate simultaneously. And finally, most importantly, and this was a game changer as I began to read through this, God reveals that the council of peace is established when these two offices function together. So that's very important. So this then confirms what has already been revealed in that peace or the freedom from the molestation of one's enemies is the result of warring as a kingly citizen, um, as a kingly uh, result of warring as kingly citizens, okay, against the demonic oppression. But it's also made secure as a priestly function, a protector of sacred spaces in play. When as priests of God, believers insulate the sanctity of their domain from demonic oppression, that we then see this office of the royal priesthood functioning together. So next, I just want to take a look at um, Haggai chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So what that says is, in my Bible here, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, Will it become holy? So we see that if a man carries holy meat, 
His holy meat is Jesus. Jesus is holy. In the fold of his garment, in his vessel, believers house Christ as a temple. And he touches bread, oil, wine, cooked food. See, these are things offered in sacrifice. So these would, would picture ministry with the fold. If, if he touches anything with the fold, well, with himself, with, with the vessel. Then the question is, does, um, does the food or the wine or the oil, does it become holy having touched the fold? So the question then is, does the man who carries Christ, the holy meat, in his vessel, the fold, and he touches ministry, such as the bread, the wine, with his hand, again, the fold, will his ministry become holy? Well, the answer is no. What do we see? Well, we see that the presence of Christ in a believer does not automatically make his ministry holy or sanctified. Keep in mind the priestly function is to minister before God, and God's sanctity requires that the ministry be holy. So then we go to verse 13. And then, Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? So if anyone who is unclean from a corpse, that would be picturing dead works, and he touches any of these things, the ministry that he's working with, bread, oil, will the ministry become unclean? The answer was, yes, it will become unclean. Yes, the ministry will become unclean. So what's God's commentary on these correct answers? So these priests have made a ruling, and their ruling is correct. So God's, um, God's commentary is, so is this people before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer is unclean. So God's commentary is, so is this people the vessels, the fold before me, and so is every work of their hands, their ministry. What is God revealing through this ruling? Well, that not only is it possible, but it has happened. His people, believers, is the physical picture of the spiritual truth, who house Christ, can be, and indeed are, unclean before him. And so is their ministry. This possibility had become the reality of believers, and this is confirmed in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as God calls out the carnal or the profane believer. And also in Hebrews 6, as an echo from Haggai with respect to repentance from dead works. God's ruling is his warning that being a believer and housing Christ does not guarantee immunity from the repercussions of spiritual contamination. Contamination of sanctity often occurs from the profane practices in believers' lives. That's what's being shown here. So, you know, just for practical application, you know, it can enter in perhaps through TV shows, through music, through the computers with all the sidebar images, as well as any other doorways that, you know, we as believers, we can identify in our own lives. We all have these things. So it's it's not, you know, the the, the point here is that there, this contamination is there, and it can occur. So for believers to assume a position as a royal priest, 
that requires the sanctity that God commands for the priesthood would be presumptuous. When our lives or our walk reflect that which is pictured in Haggai and whom God himself rules as disqualified. And so as we've looked back on the, the lessons on the priesthood and the layout of the temple and the oracle is the most holy place, that made very clear the high standard God requires for any who would call themselves a priest of God and appoint themselves as protectors of sacred, of sacred space, protectors of the sanctity of the sphere of the Lord. It becomes very evident now through the book of Haggai that God is not deceived, and um, he recognizes that there is a people who walk before him that though they belong to his kingdom, they are more appropriately appointed to perhaps, say, an outer court realm where there is far more freedom for profanity and that it would never be something that God himself would approve to be functioning as a minister of sacred space when they qualify to be pictured as this people in Haggai chapter 2. So he says, and so was this people before me, and so is the work of their hands. The third scripture that I would like to discuss is actually 1 Peter 2.9. We'll go to that itself. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for God's own possession, that you may proclaim his excellences. For a people for God's own possession is a qualifying factor for the royal priesthood. And it's actually included in the verse itself if we were um, looking closely at this verse to study it. So we see that a people for God's own possession is also called a peculiar people. And we see its first use in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. So what is this people of God's own possession? which is a qualifying factor for the royal priesthood. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth shall, shall be mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what we're seeing here is that these Two are linked. The linking of the priesthood, the linking of this royal priesthood is always with the people for God's own possession. And those that he calls as his own possession in this capacity as a priesthood are those who obey his voice and keep his covenant. And that was the mantra of the entire first section with the rebuilding of the walls. And the reason the walls are broken down is because this has not been being done. So we begin to recognize that there is a distinction 
that is subtly presented in the scriptures that would create a separation from among the congregation of God's people. And again, we've mentioned this before, you know, God does do this in Ezekiel 34. He makes the separation, the sheep from the sheep. So, and, um, you know, this is by virtue of the varying degrees of maturity among the people of God. So as we continue to, to look into this, um, we can see that the first Peter two, nine reveals even Adam, as you said earlier, it's the potential for believers if they qualify by God's standards. And I think it's easy to see how obedience to Exodus 19.5 would bring believers into conformity to the qualifications of the priesthood, while at the same time securing the dominion of God as kings over their own domains. And we, you know, we talked about how that obedience to God's word and understanding that as we submit in obedience to everything that God calls us to be as his people, and inherent in this is the fullness of our identity, the fullness of our authority, the fullness of our ambassadorship. All these things then would be employed in the kingdom of God for the purposes of establishing the kingdom of God. Typically, this would involve warfare, taking territory from another kingdom, retaining the territory of the kingdom, fighting the enemies of the kingdom, kicking the enemies out of the kingdom. Indeed, these are kingly endeavors. These are kingly endeavors, but while at the same time we, we submit in obedience to God's word as he declares and commands the sanctity required to come nigh or to come near him. He says, I'll be treated as holy by those who come near to me. So to submit ourselves to these portions of his word, of his covenant, then what by default, would begin to conform us to qualify. Sanctity isn't just the addition of that in our lives that makes us more holy. It's sanctification, sanctity, more quickly is accomplished simply by the removal of profanity, getting the garbage out of our life. The more of the crap we get out of our lives, then by default, the more sanctified we become. So... Also, you know, having studied the oracle, we know that the royal priesthood would operate out of the position of the high priest. So for a final portion of the scriptures that I'd like to look at today to help clarify all the issues that may be surrounding the understanding that the royal priesthood is a premier position and that it is one that needs to be worked for it's one that needs to be attained that it comes with the cost and that it's not an automatic um it's not an automatic when we get saved so and we saw that again with the layout of the temple that at salvation you begin in the outer court and um then you work your way in your maturity to a greater and greater intimacy with the lord so i want to look at zechariah chapter 3 and um, here we read in, in Zechariah chapter 3 that in verse 1, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. So we know that if Joshua is the high priest, 
we're looking at Oracle qualification, Oracle positioning. So we see in verse 1 that he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before an angel of the Lord. So Joshua here, as the high priest, he pictures a high priest company of believers. Old Testament, physical picture, spiritual truth. What is this picturing for believers today? Okay. So then, again, and, you know, I, I want to just set the, the background. I, I say this off and on. If you go to Zechariah chapter 2, just the chapter before that, it says, in that day, right, and many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. The context here is the, the, the end of the age. The end of the end of the age. This is, And so this pictures, sorry, people of God who are living at the end of the age. That's us. So we see that Joshua is the high priest. He pictures a high priest company of believers in that day. And in verse 3, it says, Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and standing before an angel of the Lord. So we see that this pictures those positioned for high priestly office yet are covered in uncleanness. They're covered in profanity. Okay, this we now know from our study on the priesthood would disqualify them from this position. So then we move on in verses 3, or excuse me, verses 4 and 5. It said, and he spoke to those who were standing before him saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And he says, see, I have taken your iniquity away, and you'll be clothed in festal robes. So first he says, I will remove the filthy garments. That is his call to his people in this day. He's calling us into intimacy. He's calling us into um, an understanding of the walls, the foundations that have been, you know, the desolations of many generations. He's relaying the foundations. God is rebuilding the walls, the lives of his people. That's what this is all about. And and it, it happens through the intimacy of the oracle, and then it increases the intimacy in the oracle. So it kind of bookends it because it's only with being called into the oracle that God can reveal to us the filthy garments that we don't realize that we're wearing. Because it's his call. and He wants us to clean ourselves up and he will help us and get us cleaned up in this last days. And in so doing, then we increase our intimacy with him because as being cleansed, we now have ourselves positioned for greater intimacy. So he says, See, I have taken your iniquity away. The work of God in his high priest today in response to their condition as revealed in Haggai is to come in and and through the oracle, through this intimacy, bring revelation that will cause us to be able to don these festal robes. Festal, this is a wedding garment. We'll be getting into this later, but once again, we're going to be finding as we study the scriptures that even the position of bride, we'll be heading this in our next podcast, that is also an assumed position by many in the church. They say the church and the bride are used interchangeably. Scripture never uses the bride and the church as interchangeable. And as we study more deeply, we begin to see just like the royal priesthood, there are discriminating factors that will identify out the bride from among the people. 
and we'll get into that later. But see what's interesting here is you see it here already. He's going for those that he's going to the high priestly company that's going to be cleaned up, and he's going to clean them up. He's going to put a clean turban on their head, and then he's going to put them in festal garments, festal robes. We see also with regards to that clean turban on his head that part of the high priestly clothing was a turban with a gold plate that said holy unto the Lord. And this pictures for a New Testament believer, the renewed mind. So what we're seeing here is that God is going to clean up his, his, his royal priesthood, his, his high priestly company of believers, those who are hearing and receiving his word in these days and responding to it. And he's going to place on them festal robes and he's going to place upon their head a clean turban, a cleaned mind, a cleaned out mind. Many believers today have dirty minds. And he wants to clean the mind with a turban holy unto the Lord. So what is the purpose of this move of God in the life of his high priestly company? Well, as we continue to read in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, that's one thing. If you will perform my service, two things, then you will also govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. So what do we see here? We see that this is actually a picture of the layout of the tabernacle. If you will walk in my ways, outer court, you'll perform my service, priestly. That's the inner, that's the inner court, holy place. Then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. That's the most holy place. So this is, again, a picture of the layout of the temple and the progressive growing up into maturity. But also what we see here, a second picture, is the royal priesthood. So if at first we are the peculiar people who keep his covenant, then we are walking in his ways. By virtue of walking in his ways, we can perform his service. That's the service to God as a priest. The priest is the one who performs service to the Lord. That's all part of the definition of a priest. And his service is to, to maintain the sanctity of sacred space. So we're seeing here the, the priestly aspect. Then you will govern. Well, this is a kingly aspect. You will govern and have charge. These are kingly aspects. Govern my house, have charge of my courts. So we see here the conjunction of the priesthood and the, uh, of the royal priesthood, the kingly priestly aspect of this twofold position. So um, we see then that the service and the governing is what is the result of having kept his ways and walked in his commandments and becoming a, a peculiar people. It goes on to say, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. So as you have read through this chapter, you'll see that there, you know, he's standing among angel of the Lord and the free access among those who are standing there that we're seeing here that he's um, among, you know, God and his divine counsel, Elohim, and part of that company 
would be the ruling company making decisions with regards to the kingdom of God. So as having been restored to this royal priestly position, he is granted access among those who are making decisions with regards to the heavenly um, works to be executed in the earthly realm. And he has access among those who are standing in that place. So then he goes on in verse 8, Now Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. So again, we see they are a symbol. They are the high priest company. They symbolize the high priestly company of believers. In addition to picturing the high priestly function of the priesthood, in Zechariah chapter 3, now I'd like to move forward and point out the kingly or the royal function in Zechariah chapter 4. So as we move into the next chapter of Zechariah, the focus now shifts to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the governor at this time, and he pictures one who governs or rules. So this would be the kingly function. He's a picture of those who would operate as a king or one who governs or rules over his domain. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, also give insight to God's plan and help clarify what his plan is and what pleases him. So the shift, again, goes to Zerubbabel. This also is key. Zerubbabel, physical picture, spiritual truth. So he pictures, the name Zerubbabel means him or one who comes out of Babel. So what happened was Zerubbabel, his parents were part of the group taken captive to Babylon, and Zerubbabel was born in captivity. He was born in captivity, he was raised in captivity, and everything that he knew to be true was learned through the lens of captivity in Babylon. But his destiny was that he would come out, Zerubbabel, him who comes out of Babylon. And he pictures the last day's believer who were born into the last day's Laodicean church. Revelation is clear. The last day's church is the Laodicean church. We were born in the last days. We did not create the Laodicean church. It was already in place when we were born. This is a deception that was resulting from the desolations of many desolations, the desolations of many generations of a neglected foundation. And so as believers, we too need to come out. Revelation, you know, is the heart's cry, come out of her, come out of Babylon, come out of Babylon. Well, Babylon can symbolize many different things, but one of the things it does symbolize is the religious systems of the time. And the last days Laodicean church in many ways is a Babylonian counterfeit. Another That's also part of what gets woven into as we continue to move forward through the book. So Zerubbabel pictures God's expectation and provision for one who would govern in his kingdom who would choose to come out of Babylon. So verse 6 goes on to say in chapter 4, Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is the word of the Lord to him who comes out of Babel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So we see that everything that's been discussed in these previous chapters are nothing more than building blocks that bring us to this exact place, and it will continue to take us further. The spiritual-minded man operating by the Spirit of God, being willing to um, receive a rhema word from God, being willing to become so intimate with the Lord that when the Spirit talks to you, you recognize his voice. And all the words with their definitions that reveal that as spiritual-minded believers, we operate in a supernatural capacity, as we saw in the definitions of all the words, enlightened, knowledge, wisdom, mystery, revelation, understanding. So all those words gave us insight that it is God's expectation, expectation that we walk as spiritual men in spiritual mindedness. And the, the definition of spiritual is you know, the one more ready to apprehend divine things. So what is God offering for him who comes out of Babel? It's not by our carnal understanding. It's not by the might of our hands, sheer dint of will. But what we will accomplish will be done in the power of the Spirit of God. Anything else is the dead work that Haggai was reproving the people for. Their hands had been like a corpse. We were to repent from dead works. A dead work is anything work that's done in the flesh. Verse 7, what are you, O gray mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you'll become a plain. So what that which is exalted, the great mountain, will be made low before him who comes out of Babylon. For those believers who are going to step out of the last days Laodicean church, and into the fullness of who and what God calls them to be, because they've recognized the deception that they're living under and by virtue of a renewed mind. And they begin to walk in the fullness of what God has shown them always to have been the truth. Then that which has been exalted in their lives, whether it's something in the flesh, pride, or whether it's something outside against them, the enemy, that will be made low. They'll become even as a plain. And he will bring forth the top, the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. That top stone translates cornerstone, which is the symbol of Jesus. So we see here that he who comes out of Babel will raise up Jesus. Even he will be the one who will lift the standard. And that's the, the heart's cry through, um, through Isaiah, to lift the standard, lift the standard. Jesus is the standard. And as you do a study on the standard, it's interesting to note that as you read through each of the different verses, what you, just, what you will find is that there are some people who will lift the standard, and there are other people who will look to the standard. The Zerubbabels, they are the ones who are lifting it. For those who are still immature in their journey to look to it. So there's a distinction there as well. Verse 9 goes on to say, the hand, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and the hands, his hands will finish it. So we see that it's a spiritual endeavor, but it is with the intentional volition, the intentional will of those 
with the mind to govern their domain. These are the ones who come out of Babel. They no longer submit to the enemy's lies and walk defeated lives, and they are intentional. They will begin this work in their lives, and they will end it. So we will see that he will start the relaying of the foundation, and this one who comes out of Babylon, he will finish it. But he will all do this in the power of the Spirit of God. And then it goes on in the last verse here in verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And these are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the whole earth. Who will despise the day of small things? That's what this is all about. Everybody's starting point is coming out of Babylon. Everything that this whole book is talking about, this is where our, everyone's starting point. We're all somewhere in this walk and this journey at different places. No one has arrived yet. It's a journey, and we're, we're all endeavoring. And so we don't despise a day of small things. As we're just beginning to learn warfare. As we're just beginning to learn our identity. As we're just beginning to understand the power of our words to um, have and gain victory over our enemy. As we're just beginning to operate in a greater degree of sanctity as we realize that we have been defiled in our practices, in our Christianity. Then we then would grow up and continue to grow up in our maturity, but we do not despise the day of small things. And these seven will rejoice. That's the Spirit of God. Why does the Spirit of God rejoice? He rejoices when he sees the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. These seven rejoice when they see that which makes straight in the hands of him who comes out of Babel. That's what this is saying. That which makes straight, that is the Word of God. Uncompromised, unperverted, unannulled, not contaminated with man's commentary that would skew the truth of what it reveals. God's word is that which makes straight. That is the plumb line, and it's in the hands of him who comes out of Babel. Those believers who want to continue to walk in the last days, Laodicean deceptions, and they don't respond to the call, this high priestly call of God in these last days, they will be unable to speak an uncorrupted word and that they, they don't qualify for holding a plumb line because they do not have that which makes straight. These scriptures are just a few of the many instructions peppered throughout the scriptures that clarify God's intent and his expectations regarding the standards he expects from his people, while at the same time offering a proof, Haggai, and the opportunity for restoration, Zechariah, to his high standard. What does people do with these options? That's up to them. But the standards required to allow this high priestly kingship remain unchanged. That's the point of the book. And that is what is at stake that is what God is revealing. You know, it's God's desire that all his people attain to this place of prominence in his kingdom. All right? It's not that, that oh, you know, this is a high priestly calling and this is the requirement. Too bad you don't make it. The point to all of this is this is what is required to make it. God is saying this is what's required. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to re, I'm going to change your outfit. I'm going to take off those muddy clothes. You've been swimming in the cesspool. 
We're going to take off those muddy clothes. We're going to wipe the smudge off your cheek. I'm going to give you my word so you can renew your mind. We're going to put a clean turban on your head because in doing this, it's also going to qualify you for that festal robe, the wedding garment. All right? So the, 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 the reality of it is, you know, is that this place of prominence in his kingdom does not come without a cost. And the cost is that God's people have to decide that they want it enough to operate according to Exodus 19.5. They keep his commandments. So in conclusion, just some of the issues that I would like to address here. First, this is not Christianity 101. All right. So included in this section are the issues surrounding a fully matured believer. Therefore, rather than citing the New Testament scriptures that would assure that God justifies people, that God justifies his, his children, he makes his children righteous, God sanctifies, those scriptures are in there. You know, or citing scriptures that believers have access to the oracle, to the throne of God as a child. Now, the scriptures that would be applied are those citing believers who make themselves righteous. Now, 1 Timothy 6, 11, you pursue righteousness, act of voice, all right? Those who make themselves sanctified, where it talks about 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, that you know how to possess your own vessel, all right, in sanctification and honor. Those who would want to approach the oracle not as a child of God, but as a matured believer to serve his God as priest and king. All right? All those other things, they are true, but they're not applicable to this position in the kingdom. This, this position in the kingdom is reserved, and we're going to see that as we move forward with the bride. And we're going to see how very, very many ways the bride of Christ and what she does and her definition, it's identical to that as the royal priesthood, which is also identical to that that defined and depicts and characterizes the Zadok priesthood. So as we begin to recognize, that's my exhortation as we go through all these, rather than being um, you know, turned off, by the fact that this isn't anything you've ever heard before and the standards are higher than typically taught. And well, well, now maybe I don't qualify if these are the standards. So I don't think these standards are correct because I know I qualify because this is what I've always believed. And it's what I've been taught. All I'm asking as we go through these things in this book is that you would look at these scriptures and then when we get to the bride, look at those scriptures. And then when we get to the Zadok priesthood, look at those scriptures and see if there's anything woven throughout that scripture then confirms scripture and you have a second witness. So to take the full counsel of God, we see that as God has led into deeper understanding, it has been made more and more clear how what he has revealed regarding a believer's potential, a fully developed citizen in his identity, his authority, and his ambassadorship, this will bridge him from his ability to fulfill the kingly obligations into also fulfilling the sanctity requirements to enter the oracle to serve as both priest and king. So, you know, also, third, we saw that in Zechariah chapter 6, that the oracle, excuse me, that the um, outcome of operating in these two offices results in peace, the freedom from the molestation of one's enemies, 
through rebuilding the walls and through the removal of profanity from our vessel, this results in and it bears witness to this truth that indeed operating at the level of a royal priest results in peace. We see God's commentary from Haggai that though a man house Christ, his hands and his vessel can be unclean, contaminated, which would sabotage his potential to attain to the royal priesthood. We see from Zechariah chapter 3 that in that day, God will offer to clean up his high priest, to restore him to high to um, royal priestly status, but that this Joshua company of believers must qualify through obedience to attain and retain governing his house. So, and finally, you know, God reveals in Zechariah that his spirit rejoices when he sees that which makes straight his word in the hands of him who comes out of Babel. So if that helps clarify that premier, distinctive, set-apart positioning of the royal priesthood, then that would help to strengthen the foundation upon which the remaining chapters you know, of this book will continue to build upon. And, um, you know, we saw in the priesthood that one of the missing foundation stones is the sanctity of God. It demands distinction. All right? So God does not tolerate slipshod Christianity. We're going to see that as we go through this. All right? God is not obligated, and his people are not entitled. He is a suzerain Lord. We are the vassal. And we operate in obedience. And our Lord and King keeps covenant to protect and to provide. And part of an understanding of that covenant, it's loving kindness, that God, he does his portion out of love. And it is filled with mercy and graciousness. But that does not entitle us to come into his presence with dirty hands and filthy minds. It will not be tolerated. It will not necessarily, it does not disqualify from the assembly. This is not a salvation issue. But it will disqualify from premier, distinctive, highly regarded places and positions in the kingdom of God. You know, God talks about the first fruits company, you know, the first fruits. I mean, that pictures the first fruits company of believers. Jesus was first fruits and he pictures as a pattern. What is it? It's the finest. It's the best of its class or kind. So as we go through, that's all I'd like to exhort. Keep your eyes and your mind open to seeing what the scriptures and when the scriptures make these distinctions and begin to recognize through deeper investigation what might have gotten lost in a cursory reading. Because even as I stated earlier, this merits a second look. There is a lot at stake. If you don't believe any of this, then 
you allow yourself to walk in an inferior manner, you could be compromising a position in the kingdom that you erroneously presume you have already attained. You don't want that. God doesn't want that. So that's my exhortation as we go through here, to begin to read the scriptures with a discerning eye, to pick up distinction. I mean, the scriptures are full of them. It's just a, a question of whether or not we pick up on them or not. So, and that's all I have um, today, Adam. And, you know, I would think with our next one, we'll pick up where, you know, the next chapter in the book, we've finished, you know, the priest of God, which gave us, you know, the qualifications for the priesthood and um, the no flat nose, you know, the discern, you know, the discernment. We talked about the garden and the oracle and the throne of God. All of those are the same places with differing functions, but all of which require a high degree of sanctity to have the, um, to have the, um, the rights to enter in. And then we're going to move forward into the bride of Christ. And even as I have talked about today, as we go through that bride of Christ, we're going to be talking about the distinctions made in scripture. And um, again, it will be reinforced as, as scripture bears witness with scripture, that there is distinctions being made in the kingdom of God. And it's by God's own hand. No, I mean, that's really good. And honestly, we're hitting a point now, if you're listening right now, that we are starting to get into deeper things. And it's so important that we take a look and reflect on our own life. Because I look at the church at Sardis, and this is in Revelation chapter 3, and it states, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead and says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So that is so important right now that we need to wake up. We are in Babylon. We are in a very deceptive, evil, kind of wicked place. And we need to wake up. And the thing is, is how that happens is when we start turning our eyes to the Lord and the Lord alone. We remove all of these things that don't matter. They don't. They are temporal. They are going to pass away. And it talks about continuing with the church of Sardis in chapter 3 verse 3 remember then what you received and heard not only have you received it but you've heard it and then it says keep it and repent so you've heard these things that are spoken today you've heard some of these things probably prior to what we're saying right now are you going to keep them and are you going to repent are you going to turn and you're going to look upon him because it says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. And then it says in verse 4, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. 
and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So you can already see what's kind of happening. You've got people, and I can honestly attest that this was me. I was walking. I'm watching the world. I've got my television on. I've got all this uh, stuff on. I've got the NBA, the NFL, the MLB, the PGA, all these things, all this entertainment that is keeping me from knowing truth and knowing life. And the way they talk and the way they're reacting to things, all of a sudden I'm starting to react and think the same way. We come now into a time when now this whole politics, you've got left, you've got right, and all of a sudden there's all these distractions. And the Lord is literally saying, wake up. Be still, know me, repent. This is the time he's looking for those that have not soiled their garments. And if you look to chapter 19 in Revelation, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And I know we're going to be talking about the bride next week, and I'm looking forward to it, number one, because we've all been called to be the bride, but are we making ourselves ready? That is what's really important here. And I can assure you that those people who have gone through marriage, when they're looking towards that wedding day, especially when it starts getting closer, we start thinking about it more and more. Now, if that day is truly approaching, are we waking up to it? And are we having our eye be single so our whole body is filled with light? Thus, we're not soiling our garments. But if, if that is the furthest thing from your mind, then what's happened is you've consumed yourself with the world and he, being God, is telling you to wake up. Thank you so much, Debbie. And uh, I'm looking forward to this, this next talk about the bride. And with that being said, um, I hope everybody has a great rest of your day. Thank you.